0: Having made some fairly extravagant observations about artificial general intelligence at the end of the previous episode, perhaps I should say a little more about what I think it is. To recap, most of the AIs that we are looking at at the moment, and certainly the ones that have preceded the sudden emergence of ChatGPT and its cousins onto the market from last November... They were mostly trained to do something very specific. And that specificity might have been, in the early days, recognizing handwritten letters and numbers through things like the MNIST data set, being able to identify the drawings in black and white, grayscale, of particular items of clothing, being able to distinguish between the species in photographs and so on and just to be able to do that seemed like little short of a miraculous achievement not very long ago. So we had let's call them a menagerie of AIs each of which had a very specific purpose The purpose wasn't just in the training data and the purpose to which they were put but indeed in the design of the neural nets themselves so that things that were into things like face recognition the identification of plants and animals species used things called convolutional layers in their neural nets which looked at little bits of the picture repeatedly and slid along and looked at each piece in turn, etc. The techniques don't really matter, but what we ended up with until relatively recently were very specific AIs that did very specific things and did nothing at all if you tried to v- v- vie away or, or veer, <laughs> veer away from the purpose for which they were trained. That all started to change and became, as we know, remarkably changed when it was decided to try to do more general-purpose training based on text. And we first of all had the GPT AIs that were solely text and then they were enhanced to the extent that they could recognise and in the case of DAO-E and stable diffusion and others, generate images. And then they started putting the two together so that the most recent version of OpenAI's GPT-4 can be given images, can be given spreadsheets, can be given audio. And there is no reason to suppose that it, or a or a very soon-to-appear successor of it, will be able to listen to audio, reply in audio, watch pictures, analyse the pictures in any way we like, including voice and text, reproduce pictures, create pictures from verbal texts which they can already do, And all of that will be integrated together into a single AI, probably a very big one that will take very substantial resources to run it, but the reality is that it's going to happen. And for reasons that I was talking about a couple of episodes ago, there's no possibility that we're not going to see it happen because there's no possibility that we're going to let somebody else do it rather than we'll do it ourselves for obvious reasons that I don't need to repeat. So, as, as information trickles out about the disagreements between Sam Altman and the now-gone OpenAI board, it does seem as though the major area of disagreement was over OpenAI's stated mission to produce AI that benefited all humanity, which is on its website and indeed implicitly, or maybe explicitly, to avoid open AI that was in any sense corrupt or damaging or capable of supporting criminality, pornography, you name it. A whole gamut of things that have been used or to which it has been applied by others, as we famously know from all the fuss that there is about fake porn. So the board and Altman disagreed primarily, I think, about whether OpenAI should even exist. And there is at least the smidgen of a suggestion, which I've read in a number of different uh, places, that the board fully took on board the notion that as a result of their actions, OpenAI might cease to exist and even embraced that possibility with some enthusiasm because some of them at least had become convinced that OpenAI's existence was a threat to humanity rather than something likely to benefit it, as the mission statement says it should. In and amongst all this, Altman, in an interview a day or two before the events that led to his dismissal, or or the, the decisions that led to his dismissal, gave an interview in which he was asked what he thought artificial general intelligence was. And his reply was, well, it's just very intelligent artificial intelligence. Well, if he really meant that, then I don't think that's good enough. I think that what I've been saying here is that general intelligence involves the ability to respond to a wider and wider range of inputs. And if I could just take a quick... Uh, dive into a sideline a siding here if you ask me what I think intelligence is I would say that it has breadth and it has depth. The breadth of your intelligence or any intelligence is the scope of the things that it can deal with in other words, an AI or you or I that could deal with audio and video and text and writing stories and reading stories and summarising articles and doing financial analysis and designing houses and building planes and guiding rockets. An AI that could do all of those things would have a very broad scope of, well, certainly cleverness and enable and to be able to integrate them together in a way that was... Um, shall we say, commensurate with the open AI mission to benefit humanity, it would also need a considerable amount of general intelligence. So that's the scope, the breadth of it. But there's also a question of depth. And some of the people that I know who are extremely clever are intelligent indeed in depth in a very narrow range of things so that they can they can do and solve problems of an extraordinary complexity in a very narrow range of interests. And there are people who are narrow in that sense of intelligence but not wide in the sense of capable of doing many other things. And I'm sure we've all met, at some stage or other, people who can solve the most difficult mathematical equations but you wouldn't trust them to try and go home on a bus all by themselves. That kind of thing... A caricature, but nevertheless, it illustrates the point. People who can deal with the broad realities and demands of existence, no matter what is thrown at them, are exhibiting intelligence, even if they're not particularly clever in a narrowly academic sense. And there are people who can deal with extraordinarily difficult and abstruse intellectual challenges, but who are not so very good on the broad scope of human existence. And a very, very small number are good on both. And people who are good on both are pretty rare, uh, but most people manage to a reasonable level of achievement on both because otherwise they simply couldn't function. Now, I think that what we've seen over the last year in the broadening of the scope of AI is a move in the direction of artificial general intelligence because... General intelligence needs to be a, an ability to respond to anything that's thrown at you. And you and I can deal with most things, but there are always going to be things that floor us. There are th- we have vulnerabilities. We have particular things that upset us or en- excite us or derail us. And so there are limits to the scope of our intelligence and the things that we can deal with. But most of us, most of the time, in order to be functional human beings, deal with most of the things that are thrown at us us, to a reasonable degree of competence. Nobody's perfect. I've said that before too. So what we're looking at, I think, in artificial general intelligence is, no matter how it's trained... And I think that there is a a sort of caveat here, which is maybe what is going to emerge is that we can train AI on a relatively narrow range of training data that might hitherto, until relatively recently, have meant that it could only respond to a very narrow range of things. But we will discover ways that we can train it on a little and it will be able to do a lot. And I don't think that that's implausible because I think you and I also exhibit that. People who are very good at one thing can often generalise that expertise to a wider range of things. And this is, I suppose, one of the reasons why we tend to home in on people who are particularly successful in one very narrow area because we reckon, you know, when they stop being gold medalists in the 100 metres or the shot put or chess champions or whatever it might be, we reckon that the same skill set that has made them so good in one area will actually be able to be reconfigured, refactored, repurposed to deal with other areas. So you could find yourself that someone who's really good at the 100 metres, won a gold medal at the Olympics, actually ends up being CEO of an IT company. Maybe, that's probably rather a stretch, but you see the point that I'm making, that there is a sense in which we can reconfigure our skills and reapply them to different things in ways that mean that we can do more than we've ever really tried to do, ever really been trained to do. That's the point that I'm making. You don't have an absolutely tight connection between what you train the AI to do and the things that the AI can do. And I was made to think about this the other day by an accident, almost an accident of the kind that uh, Fleming had when he discovered penicillin, that somebody posted a piece of code online and said it didn't work. And what they'd done was to use the wrong... Uh, command. They'd actually used an ordinary AI and tried to do an image recognition and, and description activity on the basis of it, which wasn't going to work. But I ran the code that they had run and I didn't get complete garbage. In other words, I, I found that even though the AI had been trained, the one we were using, had been trained to do something quite different, to to interpret text, in fact, in this case, When we threw, or when I threw, an image at it, which didn't even have any words in it, it didn't produce complete garbage. It produced some response that in some respect reflected the nature of the image. Now, of course, that connection can be either tenuous or fraudulent or utterly meaningless. I'm not disputing that for a second. But what I'm suggesting is that you could have that sort of disconnect in some way, so that what the what the ai had been purposed to do and the response that it could give to a completely alien prompt to something coming from a completely different direction from it, what it was expecting could still produce something interesting and valuable and of course the 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 golden the golden uh, ticket here or the holy grail would be an agi that could make something of anything So that whatever you fed it, it would produce something significant in return. So that what you get is that the training data has produced a general purpose intelligence that even when the data is is alien, even when what you feed it is alien from the data on which it was trained and the ostensible purpose for which it was intended the new data, the new input can still be rendered into output that is valuable, possibly even more valuable than we might imagine. And just to finish, because I've already been going on for quite a long time here, the key question here is, go back to big data. This is the bit that makes the hair on the back of your head stand up. Human beings are very good occasionally at taking some peculiar concatenation of stimuli and producing a brilliant idea from them that seems utterly disconnected from the information that they were working with. This is the sleep-on-it-but-in-spades phenomenon of producing a brilliant idea on the basis of apparently random, disconnected, inchoate activity and preparation. Now, what I'm suggesting is this the big data thing says computers can see patterns in things that we can't see. That's the core. The computer, the AI, can see patterns in things that normal human beings can't see. I have talked a little bit about this before. I'm going to come back to it because it's absolutely key to what I'm saying, but that'll be in another episode. So when we give an AI that's been trained to respond to explicit text, an image which is just bits, which isn't even in words, and the response of the AI is to see a pattern, to see something, perhaps even something that no human being could conceivably see in the bit pattern that you give it and produce an intelligible output. Well, frankly, it might even be an unintelligible output in that the computer goes far beyond anything that you or I can understand. It might seem garbage, but is it garbage? Who knows? How do you tell the difference between garbage and sense? Because, spot the theme coming, the fact that you and I can't make sense of it doesn't mean there's no sense to be made of it. You with me? I hope you are, because this is really important. So we, we give this computer, we give this AI a set of data that looks like a picture of two dogs running through a field and it sees something in them, even though it hasn't been trained on pictures of dogs or any other kind of picture that it can make sense of. And what I'm suggesting is that if you take the world as a whole, if you take the totality of existence... There may be patterns there that you and I cannot see that an AI could see, that an AGI could see even better. And therefore, we may stand on the threshold of an age in which AGI will see things in the world, will see patterns in the world, will see trends in the world, will see characteristic behaviours in the world that will not only explain things that we find unintelligible or random or very disadvantageous or very advantageous it may see patterns far 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 more complex than you and I can see and it may also be able to diagnose courses of action that will further or hinder certain consequences that will come from them and that's the point at which what I said the other day in the trivial example of asking it to write a C++ script and getting Python in return starts to become significant because that's the point. That's the war games film scenario where the computer decides that it knows what's good for us better than we know it ourselves because it can see patterns in things that we can't see. And, of course, if the computer sees patterns in things that we can't see and determines that those patterns will be catastrophic for humankind, then if the benefit to humankind is still very central to what its purpose is, go back to OpenAI's mission, yes, The computer can see that if we head on in this direction, disaster is about to befall us. It may decide if it's got the power to do something to prevent that trajectory that we would, in our turn, find completely unacceptable because of the short-term cost that it entails. It's almost like going back to 19th century John Stuart Mill's utilitarianism and asking the question if we could benefit 30 people by killing 10 people would we do it Now does the AI does the AI have the control mechanisms in place that if it discerns in the data from patterns that we can't even imagine to be there and certainly can't see, that that data will lead to disaster for the human race. But the way to obviate that disaster is to slaughter a billion of the earth's population, for example, being morbid about it. Why would it stop? Or on what basis would it stop? Because it's exactly the same question that Mill asks in utilitarianism, do the ends justify the means? And I think that is a very good point to stop because I think that what we're starting to see is the possibility that the computer not only will think that it can see more than we can see, it will see more than we can see. It will be cleverer, smarter, more far-sighted and better able to analyse the state of the world than we are or could ever hope to be. Thank you for listening.